Two plumbers in Calgary, Canada, were renovating a bathroom. They tore out the tub, and underneath, they found something that you will not find under my tub. They found a gold bar worth $50,000. In just a moment, we're going to go back to Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. I mentioned in Bible class, and first of all, I want to thank Joseph and I want to thank Alex for their kind introductions. I just want to say one of the greatest privileges as a Christian is that we get to meet amazing people. And the philosophy for those of us who teach on the Freed Hardeman campus is that Moms, dads, and congregations send to us their best. And our job is to not ruin them in four years. Thank you for sending us amazing young people. And thank you for what you are doing to bless Alex's life and allowing him to use gifts that God has been giving him through various outlets over the course of his life. Thank you for the difference that you're making. One of the comments I made in class that very, I just don't know how to be any more sincere in it is that the two things I'm talking about in Bible class and here are the two lessons I would love to preach in every congregation of the Lord's church. We live in a world that is filled with bad news. If I were to have you to pull out your phones and go to whatever major news network you wanted to, and were to give you a 60-second time limit, and I've actually done it before, and had you look for bad news stories within 60 seconds, my suspicion is you could quickly find four or five. We live in a world of sadness, heartache, and broken hearts. We live in a world that desperately needs some good news. I talked about in Bible class that I don't expect you to remember everything I say, In that class, I said, I want you to remember John chapter 1, verses 35 and following, and the phrase, change the castle. For this lesson, I want you to remember Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, and I appreciate the radio voice for sharing that. I don't don't think that's his officially recognized name, but it should be. And uh, if you play on a softball team, I hope that says on on the back of your jersey is your team nickname. But I appreciate very much your reading for us from Luke chapter 2. And I hope you'll remember Luke 2, 10 and 11. And I hope that you will remember this phrase. If true, who knew? If true, who knew? Companies have advertising slogans. They understand that if the public is going to know them, they have to do something to advertise themselves. And so companies will have slogans, you'll have marketing campaigns for a particular product that will have our slogans. You can see some on the screen, you can think of of some that you're familiar with. We know that we can save 15% on our insurance in 15 minutes or less. We've all been asked, what's in your wallet? Think of those phrases that we connect to companies and that we connect to products. And that's how we remember the company. And that's how we remember the product. And if an advertising team does a a successful job 
of your memorizing that phrase, then they know that you will have their product or their company in your mind from that moment forward. So I want you to think, God is changing human history. God is sending the Savior to the world. God is enacting or bringing to the earth a plan which was enacted before the world was created to save human beings. What is God going to use as His advertising slogan? What is going to be His catchphrase? It's interesting that when you look in Luke, when the angel made the announcement to those shepherds, he says, I bring you glad tidings of great joy. I bring to you good news. I want you to think about that. God's slogan for all that He was doing in Christ Jesus was simply a word which for us translates as good news. That just might be, might be the greatest understatement in all of human history. This is not just good news. This is the greatest news that the world has ever known. God's promises are being fulfilled. The Savior has come. God has come to earth. Satan can be defeated. Our sins can be forgiven. We can live for God forever in the eternal realm in that heavenly, beautiful Jerusalem. It is the best news that any group of human beings could get in their entire existence. It's not just good news. It's glad tidings of great joy. And that statement and that word became God's word. It became His slogan. It became what He used throughout the teaching of those who followed Jesus to identify all that God was doing in Christ Jesus. If we were to go to Luke chapter 4 and verse 18, Jesus comes to His home synagogue. They ask Him to do a Scripture reading. Usually there were seven Scripture readings in the typical synagogue on a Sabbath. Usually a couple were done by priests. The other five were done by men in the congregation. And so they handed Jesus the scroll of Isaiah. He turns to what would be Isaiah 61 in our Bibles. And it says that He has been anointed to preach the gospel to the poor. Now, what I want you to do for me is I want you to create an autocorrect in your brain. When you are texting someone, you have an autocorrect. Have you ever used your autocorrect? Some of you may have decided to turn it off. Sometimes it's a blessing and sometimes it's a curse. Sometimes I say I love you, sometimes I say I live you, which in the case of my wife, I guess both apply. But the point is, sometimes it autocorrects, and you're not always terribly excited about what it autocorrects to. I want to create a spiritual autocorrect in your brain. Throughout our Bibles, we have this word gospel. Okay, it's really not finished translating. Okay, this word that is translated as good news, or the verb, the proclaiming of the good news, the noun and verb forms are found over 120 times in our New Testament. I want to emphasize over 120 times, it was God's term for all that He was doing in Christ Jesus. When you see the word gospel, what I want you to hear is good news, because that's what the word means. We hide the meaning of the word. 
And so you're thinking, wait a minute, we can't do that because then we can't say we're having a gospel meeting anymore. Okay, you can still call it that, but actually think about the power of it. We're having a good news meeting. Every time we say the word gospel, we're saying a word which means good news. And when we're using the verb form, we're using the pro- it's saying we proclaim, we share, we tell, we make known the good news. And so what he says is, I have been anointed to proclaim the good news. To the poor, he said. If you look over Luke chapter 16 and verse 16, notice it says, Since the time of John, the coming of John the Immerser, the gospel, what? Autocorrect, the good news of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed. The good news of how to live in the Messiah, in the Savior, as a part of God's kingdom began with the coming of John the Immerser. If we're to go to the book of Acts, if we look in Acts chapter 8, we have there, you've got a series of witnesses that are coming forward to share as witnesses to what Jesus has done in the world and in their lives to the world. There, uh, you have a series of witnesses being brought, being brought to, the, to the stand to testify for Jesus. And when it's Philip's turn and it talks about what the people believed and what the people were baptized based upon, it says they believed the preaching of what? The preaching of the good news. In Acts chapter 13, on that first missionary journey, when Paul was trying to summarize the message that he and the other missionaries proclaimed, he says, we preach to you the good news. Specifically, the good news that God has fulfilled His promises. That through the prophets of the Old Testament, in fact, you can think about Luke chapter 24, where Jesus says, in essence, what was written in the law and the prophets and the writings was about Him. And so you have all these prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. And Paul said that as we went out preaching the gospel, our message to you, and likewise his message to countless churches and communities, was that God has kept that promise. The Messiah has come, and in that Messiah we have hope. We have good news of great joy. For the first time in human history, because of the coming Jesus, we truly have hope. Without Jesus, before Jesus came, any human hope was temporary hope. It was a hope that lay in the temporary things of this world. But God said when Jesus came, it was good news. His coming was good news. When the Bible described His life, He said it was good news. When it described His preaching, it was good news. When it described the preaching of His apostles, it was good news. When it described what men like Paul said about how we're to live in Christ Jesus, He described it as good news. My question this morning is, do we believe that? Does anybody believe that what we have in Jesus is good news? That's pathetic. Does anybody believe that what we have in Jesus is good news? Okay, if I said your favorite football team just won the national championship, I'd have amens coming out the walls. I want you to think about what excites us in life. Do we really believe with all of our hearts that what we have in Jesus is not just good news, but it's the best news that we'll ever hear in our lives? Because it doesn't matter what we have. It doesn't matter what good things have happened to us. If we don't have Jesus Christ, it all dies at the doorstep of our existence. But if we have Jesus Christ, they can take everything I have. 
And I can in this world be abused and beaten and mistreated. But when I cross into the doorstep of eternity, I have more than the wealthiest sheik on this planet. Do we truly believe that it's good news? If true, who knew? So first of all, each of us in our own hearts have to answer the question, do I believe that I have the best news that has ever been shared with anybody? And then once we've made the decision that we believe it's good news, then we need to answer two more questions. I have two questions for us. First of all, if we believe it's good news, why don't we smile? Why don't we smile? If it's truly Good news. In Acts chapter 8, we have the conversion that we can commonly refer to of the Ethiopian eunuch. You've got a man that traveled a thousand miles to go to worship. If you thought you had to travel a little ways to get here this morning, you have nothing to complain about. He traveled from Ethiopia to Jerusalem so that he could worship with God's people. He was a eunuch, by the way, which means when he got there, he couldn't go inside. He traveled a thousand miles to stand outside the temple and watch people go into worship. He traveled a thousand miles to stand outside and listen while the people on the inside worshiped. That's how desperately he wanted to be as close as he could to his God. As we think about that story of the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch, we often emphasize things like belief, or we emphasize baptism. We emphasize that baptism is to be a baptism of believers. And we emphasize that it's immersion. We talk about how they both went down into the water. And all of those things are fine and good and appropriate. But we forget that there's more that is taught and that is lived out here. Well, don't you notice what the text says, not only that he did to enter Christ, but I want you to notice what the text says he did when he came out of the waters in Christ. It says what? He came forth from baptism and with a somber and serious face so that everyone would know he was taking this moment seriously, he somberly walked to his chariot. Is that what the text says? It says he went on his way rejoicing. I don't know what that looked like, but I can tell you the text says he was excited about what he had found in Jesus Christ because he had read Isaiah. He had heard from those Old Testament prophets about a coming Messiah, but this was the day he met him. He now knows who he is. He is Jesus of Nazareth. And he didn't just die on that cross. He came forth from this grave. He's alive and well. And because he is alive, he knew that he as a eunuch could be alive forever. He was excited. I want you to think about it. When we came out of the waters of baptism, do you remember how excited we were? Man, we were ready to take on the world. Give me somebody lost and I'll teach them in the next 27 seconds. We're ready to take on anything the devil throws at us. In fact, a practice I learned years ago when I did a summer internship in youth ministry in Auburn, Indiana, that I learned from the preacher there, is that when I baptize somebody, I will encourage them to go home while it's fresh on their mind and write down what they did, why they did it, and how it made them feel. The first reason I have them do that is that's how I begin Bible studies. You tell me your story, I'll tell you my story. What I did, why I did it, how it made me feel. And then we look at God's story. And so I think that's important to be able to start studies with people about Christ. 
So that's one reason I want them to do it. But another reason that I want them to write that down is because they're going to be like Alexander someday, and they're going to have a terrible, no good, very bad day when they want to move to Australia, although my family and I have always wanted to visit the Australia Zoo. But I want you to think about times in your life when you're discouraged, when you're hurt, when you're down, and when you're broken. And I want them to have written on a piece of paper why they came to Jesus and how it felt the moment they came out of the waters of baptism. So when they have those terrible, no good, very bad days, they can remember what it felt like in that moment. And I believe what happens to a lot of Christians is we forget what it felt like in that moment. We don't, the devil doesn't get us by causing us to stop believing in Jesus. He just gets us to stop enjoying believing in Jesus. To get us stop feeling the joy of living in Christ Jesus, of knowing Christ Jesus and having hope. He gets us bogged down with responsibilities and struggles and problems and discouragements until that's all we see and we can no longer see that we should be able to live the rest of our lives going on our way rejoicing. Persecution is the backdrop of First Peter. He's writing to people who are being persecuted for their faith. But as he begins the letter, look at what Peter says in verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice. You greatly rejoice because once you become a Christian, you join a country club in which you are welcomed and everybody's nice. You never have any problems for the rest of your earthly existence. And that's why you greatly rejoice. Is that what he says in verse 6, 7, 8, or 9? He says, no, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you are distressed by various trials. He says, even when we face struggles as God's people, we can still rejoice because no matter what they do to us, they can't have our good news. It is ours to keep if we are in Christ Jesus. He says, rejoice with joy inexpressible at the end of verse 8. Why? Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. The Christian has the ability. I'm not saying we don't ever cry. Jesus Himself wept. Three record recorded weepings of Jesus in the New Testament. So it doesn't mean we're never going to be sad and we're never going to hurt. But it means even in my darkness I have hope. And I have a genuine joy in life that the rest of the world that doesn't have Jesus Christ can not have. And that's why Paul, in a prison, who is in prison writing to the church at Philippi, in his book at least 16 times, he's in prison, but it's the guy in prison trying to cheer up the folks out of prison, and at least 16 times he talks about joy. And his theme of the book is rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I say rejoice. Paul, how in the world can you be prisoned? In fact, he talks about in chapter 1 contemplating the outcome of his trial. He believes he, he's going free, but as he contemplates whether he might be executed or go free, he struggles with which he prefers. They both mean Jesus. And he ultimately says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus is the center of my existence, so I'm okay with living. Why? Because I get to serve Jesus. I'm okay with dying. Why? Because when I die, I get to be with Jesus. And so that's why he says in chapter 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now I'm going to tell you, when I first read that verse, or when I was younger and I, I would think about that verse, I had my comic superhero mentality towards that verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So I had this idea that in Jesus Christ, 
I can leap tall buildings, I'm faster than a speeding bullet, etc. But what I came to realize when I studied that book deeply and looked at what was going on in Paul's own life, he wasn't saying that in Christ Jesus I'm faster than a speeding bullet and I can leap tall buildings. He says, in Christ Jesus I have learned that I can be content, I can have joy, I can do all things even if the bullet passes through me and the building comes down on me. It's not about what happens to me. It's about how I view what happens to me because of who's with me when it happens to me. She knew it was going to be a bad day. Her alarm didn't go off. She woke up late. She didn't have time to shower. She just kind of threw her clothing on. She rushed to get on the public bus. She got on the bus. It was packed. She couldn't find a place to sit down, so she had to stand and hold the handhold all the way as the bus lurched and jerked back and forth. When she arrived at work, she was late, and she had to deal with that with her boss and her co-workers. It was just one of those days when it seemed that nothing went right all throughout the day, so it started badly, and it just seemed to get worse. When she got on the bus to come home, she worked her way finally to the back of the bus, and with every lurch of the bus, it was as if her gloom only deepened more and more. Until she heard a voice from the front of the bus. And that voice from the front of the bus said, Beautiful day, isn't it? She likely thought to herself, You've got to be kidding. Obviously, he didn't have my day. But what happened next is, the voice from the top front of the bus suddenly started talking about things that they could see outside the windows. Instead of it being a, a metro bus that took people to and from work, suddenly it was transformed into one of those expensive tour buses you take when you go to a city where a lot of tourists go. And so as they drove down the road, he, he would talk about this monument or city hall or this library or this park, and he would begin to describe it and talk about its history and its story and suddenly she found herself looking out the window and noticing things that she had never noticed before, and she suddenly caught herself smiling. And she realized she felt better. And so as she began to feel better, she thought, I've got to meet this guy who just became our tour guide. And so as she got to her stop, he was still speaking in the front of the bus, so she knew he was still on, so she worked herself to the front of the bus, so she could shake hands and say thank you to the man who had brightened her day. And there he sat in the front seat, wearing sunglasses and holding a long white cane. She said, it took a blind man to help me see the beauty in the world around me. She rushed off the bus, she rushed up the steps to her apartment, she flung open the door and she shouted, Beautiful day! Isn't it? We have Jesus Christ. And nothing they do, they took Paul's freedom, they took everything in his life. Yet in that prison cell, he said, I can rejoice. Why? Because they cannot take the only thing that matters. And that is the good news and hope we have in Jesus Christ. What is it going to take 
for us to quit riding along in the bus of life with sour looks on our faces. The world looks at us and they don't want Jesus because the people who are in Jesus don't seem to like it very much. If true, who knew? If it's true, why don't we smile? The second question, if true, why in the world don't we share it? In Mark chapter 16 and verse 15, Jesus wanted His apostles to preach the gospel. What's our autocorrect? Preach the good news to the world. And they did that no matter what. In Acts chapter 5, they were imprisoned and beaten. The apostles were ordered not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. So what did they promptly do? The text tells us in verse 42, they basically started immediately doing the opposite of what they were told. Don't you talk about Jesus anymore. So what does the text say that they did in verse 42? And every day, did anybody catch that? Every day in the temple and from house to house, publicly and in personal Bible studies in people's homes, they kept right on teaching, and that word preaching, proclaiming the good news. Remember our autocorrect. Proclaiming the good news of Jesus as the Christ. In the aftermath of the death of Stephen, blood was in the water and a wholesale persecution broke out against the Lord's church. People were being dragged from their homes and dragged off to prison. Moms and dads put in prison, stoned to death for their faith in Jesus Christ. And so they promptly silenced and stopped talking about Jesus for fear of their lives. No, the text says they went everywhere proclaiming Jesus Christ. Because they had found something amazing, the best news they had ever known, and you simply could not stop them from talking about it. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is found in 2 Kings chapter 7. It's the story of the four lepers outside the city gates of Samaria. Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, you may remember that After the death of Solomon, the kingdom was ripped apart and Rehoboam got part of the kingdom and Jeroboam got part of the kingdom. The northern kingdom had for much of its existence its capital in Samaria. And so it was that the capital city was attacked and surrounded by the army of Aram, the army of Syria. The city was under siege so long the people were starving to death. The people were starving to death so long that they had begun to eat each other's children. Now I want you to get the picture of what's going on in this story. You have four men who are beggars at the city gates. These leprous men, once they are declared by the priests to be leprous, and there were many skin diseases that fell under the category of leprosy. Some were non-deadly. Its worst form was lethal. Whatever form they had, once they are designated and given a diagnosis by the priest, they are going to be outcasts and beggars the rest of their lives. They're going to be kicked out of their homes, their community, and their jobs. They're going to burn everything that can be burned that they have touched. And they're going to beg for every meal the rest of their lives. They can't be around their loved ones. Anytime anyone who doesn't have leprosy approaches them, they're going to have to cover their faces and cry out unclean. Now, I want you to think about this. These are four men who beg for existence, who are begging at the gate of a city that is under siege, and the people are so desperate for food, they have begun to cannibalize each other. 
you have four men begging at a city that is now full of beggars. I want you to feel their desperation. And so they finally said, hey, we're not accomplishing anything here. Basically, if we stay here, we're going to die. Why don't we go to the enemy? The enemy may kill us. They may not feed us. Or they may feed us. But basically, as I put myself in their sandals, I find themselves thinking, we're not going to be any worse off no matter what reaction we get from the enemy. So we've got to try something because we're dying here. And so they go to the camp of Syria. The text tells us that as they are going, God has caused the Assyrian army to hear the sound of an invading army. Maybe they heard the neighing of the horses, the rolling of chariot wheels, the rustling of garments, the clanging of armor, the stamping of feet. And it was so strong and it was so loud, this sound, that the army of Syria thought, oh no, the king of Samaria has snuck spies out of the city, messengers, and they've gone to the Egyptians and gone to the Hittites, and they've made some kind of agreement with them and asked them to come and defend them, and we're about to be attacked. I mean, it was so loud and so close that they became desperate. And so they thought they were about to be overwhelmed by a foreign invading army. So they literally stopped everything and ran for their lives. Well, in come the four beggars behind them. And when the beggars arrive at this massive camp, there's tents, there's clothing, there's gold, there's silver, there's food, there's things to drink. It's all theirs. And instantaneously, the four poorest guys in town become the four wealthiest guys in Samaria. They have everything that an entire army left behind. Now, can we blame them when the text says they begin to take things and hide it away? Remember, everything that matters to them has been taken from them. They've lost their homes, their families, their jobs, everything. So can we be surprised that when they finally have something, they start having it hidden or start hiding it away for fear that they will lose that as well? Two plumbers were working on a bathroom in Calgary. And as they were renovating that restroom, they pulled out the tub and they found a gold bar. Now, the owners of the household, the couple, had misplaced it. Now, Joe, I'm going to tell you, if I have a gold bar worth $50,000, i am going to know where it's at. It will not be lost under my tub. But they had misplaced it and didn't know where it was. The point is, the two plumbers could sell that, get $25,000 apiece, and the homeowners would be none the wiser. But they gave it back because they said it wasn't theirs. It wasn't theirs to keep. It was the right thing to do. The lepers came to the exact same conclusion. The text tells us they said this is a day of what? This is a day of we must Go tell the king. It is not enough that we have found food and sustenance. 
But there's a city of people that are starving to death. It is not right for us to keep what we have found to ourselves. We must go tell the king. Today, we focus on if true, who knew? We have a world filled with people that are overwhelmed with bad news. I want you to think about the the protest and the counter-protest and the guy in a Dodge Challenger that plowed through the crowd, killed a lady, injured at least 19 others. There was a police helicopter monitoring the, uh, the two groups as they were interacting with each other. That helicopter crashed. Two policemen died. That's just two stories from one place in the United States on one day. All of you have written your own misery headlines. You've had struggles and problems you've had to deal with in your lives and your family. There are a lot of people out there that are living every day with bad news. And they desperately need a little good news. But they're not going to hear it if they don't get it from our lives and our lips. If we do not show the good news we found, and if we do not go and share the good news we found, then they're going to keep right on living in heartache and misery, and sorrow. Why won't we share? I want you to imagine that one of the elders came to me right before my lesson and said, hey, Brother Kirk, we just, we're just kind of in a financial uh, tight spot, and, and we just really can't give you any financial support to kind of help you with your travel expenses and that kind of stuff. But i tell you what, what we're going to do is one of our deacons is a doctor, and he has developed a cure for cancer, and I'm going to give you a bottle of 24 pills guaranteed to cure cancer. I'm okay with that. If you've got that, that's all. I'm totally fine with that. But if I have a bottle of pills for cancer, as soon as this invitation's over, I don't want to hurt any of your feelings, but I'm not staying for the meal. Because I'm going to get in a car, and I'm going to go to my dad's house. Because he starts treatments in about two weeks. I'm going to go to my sister's house who's fought breast cancer. And I'm going to give it to her and I'm going to give it to her husband who's had two surgeries because of tumors in his neck. I'm going to go to one of our students who's fighting cancer. I think about I'd given anything to have it two years ago for my wife and her sister Debbie here's today's sister. I want you to think about somebody you know that has cancer. If after the potluck meal we passed out a pill to everybody, what would you do? I don't know about me, you, but me, I'm going straight to the people who need it. But the fact is, we have something that's far worse than cancer. It's called sin. And we have the cure for it. We have the good news. We know who can fix it. Yet we keep the medicine bottles in our buildings and in our houses. And there are people all around us who are dying. There are people in the city starving to death while we are hoarding away the wealth that we have found in Jesus Christ. And it's time we got up off our cushioned pews and our climate-controlled buildings and went to the masses and said, I found the good news and it can be yours too. And I believe if God's people 
If we will smile and we will share, it will change the world. But we can't give what we don't have. Jesus died on the cross so you could live your life with hope. Do not walk out of this building without accepting that hope. Just as you would rush to the hospital to get a cure for heart disease or cancer, rush down this aisle to accept the Savior who died on the cross so that you could express your faith in repentance, confession, and baptism, put Him on, take away your sins, and have hope for eternity. And for those of us who have been living without smiles and shares, it's time we stopped. And there's no time like the present as we stand and as we